This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, that's a reminder that this isn't just a week of free agency. It's also, Ron, can you complete the sentence? I can. It is uh, St. Patty's Day, also known as... You got it, big guy. Yeah, just drunk guess, that's, that's a big deal in Boston, right? Huge. Yeah, everybody gets to pass out, fall on the floor, and say that it's, it's okay. I'm Irish. Yeah. Well, it's a big deal where I'm calling from, too. I'm calling from Dublin. That'd be Dublin, <laughs> Ohio. <laughs> it's a big deal here, but just another guess. It's not such a big deal in Big D as in Dallas. Oh, contraire, Dublin. my friend. The city of Dallas has held a St. Patrick's Day every year since 1979, and it's the largest single-day, single-event celebration in the city in the calendar year. We love our Irish. Who knew? Wow. Wow. Whoa. Well, well, they do I'll ride Irish horses and shoot Irish guns off. Is that, That's pretty cool. Do you have any rivers that you color green like they do in Chicago? Uh, no. <laughs> okay, well, maybe it's not such a big deal. We well, I'll tell you what is a big deal. <laughs> it's our St. Patty's edition of the Talk of Fame Network. That's right. It's this show, the St. Patty's edition. We have Hall of Famer's Hall of Famer, Emmett Thomas. He of the 1969 Super Bowl champion, Kansas City Chiefs. We also have Raiders Beat Report, Scott Bear. He of NBC Sports Area. Bay Area, and a preview of March Madness, otherwise known as the start of free agency. And Goose, I know you've never been a big fan of NFL free agency, right? Why? Because yeah, because you're overpaying for, by and large, second-tier talent. The NFL learned its lesson in 1993. You can't let a Reggie White into the marketplace so you don't see the stars in free agency anymore. So teams are overpaying this week for the likes of Nick Foles, Trey Flowers, Trent Brown, Juwan James, and C.J. Mosley. In the 25 years of free agency, you can count the free agents who played to the length and value of their contracts on two hands. That's exactly Ron, right. what say you? Well, the only people wasting more money in the NFL this week is the federal government, which is a master at it, but the NFL is a close second. It's those people paying for admission to uh, Yale, USC. Yeah, I don't know. Well, anyway, we've got a lot of guys changing uniforms for a lot of money, as Goose just said. And we'll follow those players and that money when we return. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Before we get to free agency, uh, a little piece of news from the Hall of Fame this week, and that's the Hall of Fame game, which is scheduled for August 1st. It will be between Denver and Atlanta, which should make the Pat Bowling champ Bailey and Tony Gonzalez fans happy, and maybe, just maybe, the Joe Flacco fans, too. I said maybe. Okay, as we mentioned in the previous segment, it's March Madness in the NFL, and there have been some big hits already. Goose mentioned them. Here are some others. Terrell Suggs leaving the Ravens. C.J. Mosley leaving the Ravens. Eric Weddle leaving the Ravens. Z'Darrius Smith leaving the Ravens. <laughs> what in the name trend? of Richard is going on Baltimore? <laughs> and, of course, <laughs> and of course, there's Antonio Brown going to Oakland, albeit by trade, but going nonetheless. Uh, we've got, as I mentioned, Scott Bear joining us soon to talk about EB84. So let's start there, Goose. Hall of Famer Randy Moss 
said that AB84 forced his way out of Pittsburgh for more bucks, empowers elite players who he says can learn something from what he did. So what can they learn? Guys, I believe Randy also forced his way out of Oakland, didn't he? Yeah. As long as as there are desperate teams out there, star players can pull stunts like Brown did in Pittsburgh and wind up benefiting. And there will always be desperate teams in a win-now league. But something tells me the Brown-Raiders marriage will not end well either. Yeah, I'm with you on that, Goose. Um, Ron, I saw something on ESPN the other day. I saw a call that said, uh, should we consider or reconsider John Gruden after this move? To which I'd answer... Why? I mean, he's 49 and 63 since winning the Super Bowl back in, what was it, 2002? He was 4 and 12 last year. And he just added a wide receiver who couldn't get to a Super Bowl with a better quarterback and a better defense and, frankly, a better team. Uh, and then, of course, John Gruden uh, hasn't played a game either. So reconsider John Gruden, Ron? Uh, I don't think so. Well, I mean, that depends. Uh, reconsidering for what? Maybe ESPN meant they're reconsidering why they ever hired him in the first place as an expert. <laughs> uh, so he won a Super Bowl with Tony Dungy's team and an actual NFL quarterback, which Dungy never had. Uh, and since then, his team's been dreadful. So we traded away a very good receiver to pay twice as much for a, a very good malcontent receiver. Uh, doesn't seem like good business. Uh, and, you know, if he thinks that Roethlisberger didn't get him the ball, we let Antonio Brown plays a yeah. few games with Derek Carr. Exactly. Hey, the franchise quarterback. Come on. That's what John Gruden told us. Come on. Hey, Goose, I know you uh, you said something earlier about uh, Randy Moss. You saw what Larry Fitzgerald said, too, and I agree with him. He said that Antonio Brown doesn't know how good he had it in Pittsburgh. I think, as Ron just mentioned, I think he's about to find out. Yeah, just look at all the players who have left New England for the money in far worse situations. Nate Solder and Danny Amendola, Richard Seymour, Vince Philcork, Asani Samuel, just money can't buy happiness. As we've seen in 25 years of free agency, it can't buy success either. Yeah, well, it hasn't bought us happiness. Has it? Oh, where's the money? Where is the money? Okay, as I said... I'd like uh, to try, though. <laughs> I would like the opportunity to try to buy some happiness. That would be... That's right. I'd love to have that opportunity. Um, we're going to have more on AB in a few minutes with Scott Bear, but uh, on to free agency, which... <laughs> which is this week's deals, Goose. And I know you're not particularly interested, but if you were, which of the deals got your attention? Well, there are five impact positions on a football field. Quarterback, left tackle, wide receiver, pass rusher, cornerback. Safety and inside linebacker are not on that list. Yet yet the Jets spent $85 million on an inside linebacker, and the Redskins spent $84 million on a safety. Whenever you blow a draft pick, you have to overpay in free agency to address a problem. If I were a team owner, I would tell my GM, we're sitting out the first week of free agency when all the crazy money is spent. Go shopping in the second week when there are better deals and less expense. Sounds like Bill Belichick. Hey, Ron, which is the most impactful position on the show? Well, it's got to be you. You're the king of all not, things. Not in Dublin, Ohio, it ain't. <laughs> you are the straw that stirs the drink. Yeah, or something You're just like a couple that. of saps. Hey, uh, anything get your attention this week, Ron? Well, yeah, I mean, the Raiders make it Trent Brown the highest-paid offensive lineman in football. I mean, yeah. what, what catches my eye is a year ago, the 49ers couldn't get rid of the fat turd fast enough. Yeah, right. You know, he, he has one good season under the best offensive line coach in football, Dante Skarniecki, and now he's Anthony Munoz. I mean, you know, and the, the, the interesting thing is that this is the second year in a row that a Skarniecki, a trained left tackle, became the highest-paid lineman in football. 
Well, how'd that work out with the Giants and, and uh, Nate sold it? They got buyer's remorse. Yeah, exactly. I guess is that soon going to become a feeling that spreads to Oakland. Maybe they should just hire us Dante Scarnett, yeah. Who knows? Well, hey, uh, that's a good idea, actually. Yeah. Uh, Gooseman, how about Terrell Suggs leaving Baltimore after 16 years there? I mentioned him earlier. Um, to me, I'll be honest with you, I think it's it's sad. I, I would have liked to have seen him in his career like Ray Lewis did, and that's where he began it. But he's not. He's going to Arizona. No, it, it was time for him to walk away. He's 37 this season. Age is the one opponent you cannot defeat. But like most players, Suggs thinks he can, so he signs and goes back home to play in Arizona. Now, it's tough for the elite to walk away from the money and the spotlight. I think the overwhelming majority, I know the overwhelming majority of careers end when players are cut, not when they retire. Hey, Goose, isn't age the one opponent, though, that we are defeating? You, me, and Ronnie, we're defeating that age. Uh. We got that thing down on the ground. But we're still underdogs. We, we remain underdogs. We remain underdogs. <laughs> hey, Ron, I asked him about Suggs. Uh, you know what? I think back to when he was drafted. He was at ASU, and he was a premier pass rusher. Right. Cards had the chance to take him in the 2003 draft. Instead, they chickened out. They traded out of the sixth spot. Remember that? And they got yeah. wide receiver Bryant Johnson, and uh, I think it was defensive end Calvin Pace in the first round. So Baltimore could pick him at 10. And not so smart. No, At least they got him only 16 years later. Right, classic Arizona move. Get him when he's shot. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I will say this to to sort of uh, build upon what Goose just said a minute ago. Uh, in, in the case of Suggs, and I and I look, I get your point. With you know, you, you'll always think of him as a razor, but. Uh, uh, as a Raven, but you know Arizona, they've cornered the market uh, 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 on not being smart, and the Raiders have cornered the market on unloading guys at the right time. So my guess is that the Cardinals doubled down uh, on being stupid uh, when it comes to Terrell Suggs. You know they didn't take him when they should have taken him, and now they're taking him when they shouldn't take him. He's going to be 37 in October. Uh, yesterday's news is what the Cardinals major in. Yesterday's news: Charlie Trippy used to be a great player. That's who they talk about, Charlie Trippy. No, nobody's under indictment here or appearing on the next Law & Order rerun or doubling down on being stupid. Uh-uh, no, because that's a signal that somebody, that would be our Ron Borges, is about to make a Hall of Fame case for yet another X-Raider. Ron, I thought you had them all in the Hall of Fame. Anyway, take it away, Ron. Let's see what you got. One thing is sure about Lyle Alzado. He was a wild man even by the high standards of other wild men. Was he more than that? From the mid-70s to the early 80s, Lyle Alzado was a defensive force who clawed and fought his way to two Super Bowls, three All-Pro designations, and cult status in two cities, Denver and Los Angeles. Undersized and overzealous, Alzado sprung out of a dysfunctional family with a chip on his shoulder and a violent streak that converted him from an unwanted small college player into a rookie starter on the 71 Broncos. Both opportunities were spawned from unusual places. After getting no scholarship offers, Alzado landed at Yankton College in South Dakota. There, two things happened that changed his life. First, he found anabolic steroids. Second, a Bronco scout found his car broken down in Montana. The former gave Alzado ungodly strength. The latter led that scout to Montana Tech, where he decided to watch some film while they were fixing his car. What he saw was an unknown guy named Alzado destroying Tech's offense. Alzado ended up being drafted by the Broncos on the fourth round, and when Rich Tombstone Jackson was injured, he stepped in at defensive end and he never left, becoming the cornerstone of the Orange Crush defense that would lead the Broncos to the Super Bowl six years later. Alzado became an all-pro, UPIAFC Defensive Player of the Year, and was on a team that went 12-2 and and lost to the Cowboys in Super Bowl XII. Known as much for violent outbursts on and off the field as for dominating play, he seemed a Jekyll and Hyde personality. He once said, if me and King Kong went into an alley, only one of us would come out, and it won't be the monkey. Love that. Uh, what, 
what few knew was his obsessive abuse of steroids was fueling that intensity. He was traded in 1978 to Cleveland after a contract dispute, and two years later they thought he was shot, and they traded him to the Raiders. He was hell-bent on proving the Browns as wrong as he had proved the Broncos. Longest player strike in history uh, limited the 82 season to nine games, but Alzado had seven sacks, was again named All-Pro, became the heart of a defense known for mayhem. The following year, they won Super Bowl 18, and he had seven and a half sacks, five tackles for losses, and was a star again. By then, however, he claimed he was spending as much as $30,000 on steroids a year, and instead of building him up now they were tearing him down within two years uh, he was retired and within five years after that he had died from a brain tour but the truth is this although officially he only has 23 sacks because it wasn't a stat until 1982 he actually has 112 and a half sacks as well as 24 forced fumble 20 fumble recoveries and three safeties was his second all time one can debate his cause of death, but you can't debate that only 25 men since the NFL made sacks official reach the quarterback more often than Lyle Alzado. Does that make him a Hall of Famer? You decide. I'll tell you something else we can't debate, Ron. We're going to commercial right now. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, we're now joined by a past friend of mine from San Diego. That was a long time ago, but uh, he's since moved to the Bay Area, and he's since moved to covering the Oakland Raiders. And that's Scott Baer of NBC Sports Bay Area. And as I mentioned, he does cover the Oakland Raiders and is and has been busy this week with all of Oakland's moves. And, Scott, first of all, thanks for joining us. And this just in, you're not finished. You you have a stadium vote this Friday, right? Yeah. Uh, at, at long last, after several incremental updates on getting closer and closer and closer to a deal with Oracle Park or exploring Levi's or going to London or anywhere else in the known universe, finally they're going to end up where they belong uh, one more year in Oakland. The vote, uh, there's no drama or resistance expected uh, from the Oakland Coliseum Executive Board or the NFL when they vote on it at the owners' meetings. Uh, one more year in Oakland before they head to Vegas. Oh, the joy of covering the Raiders. Okay, first question for you. <laughs> Um, the Antonio Brown trade, uh, in a lot of places, has been portrayed as a steal by the Raiders. Um, but listen, I, I, I've been around long enough to know that people don't really fleece Pittsburgh when it comes to wide receivers. I look back at Mike Wallace, Antonio Holmes, Plexico Burris. How do you see this move? Yeah, uh, you can't help but compare this trade for a superstar player to another trade for a superstar player when John Gruden shipped Khalil Mack to uh, Chicago when he didn't really have to, and he, and he held some cards there. And I characterized that deal with a level of John Gruden's impatience. Um, he saw a difficult situation. He saw two first-round draft picks without exact draft slots, and then he took it, uh, maybe when he didn't have to. Uh, with this one, uh, I give him credit for more discipline here because if we're talking about impatience striking again and then saying, I want to get my guy, here's $15 million bucks and take pick number 24 or number 27, I wouldn't have a great view of it, but they held on to all four draft picks in the top 35. They thought they were out of this thing Wednesday, and they kind of hung tough. They stuck to their offer. They didn't increase it or panic to get their guy, and ultimately they got him for a very reasonable rate. I know that you look at that extension, and you're like, wow, uh, you know, Instagram, he, that Antonio Brown Instagram lived his way into $50 million bucks. but the fact of the matter is is that 
the Raiders have gutted all their homegrown talent to the point that they don't have a realistic extension due for at least three years. They can afford to pay him what it costs, and I think they would rather pay out millions of dollars to Antonio Brown to be able to keep all of their draft capital, and that's what they did. Okay, well, as you know, Larry Fitzgerald is a pretty good wide receiver. He said that Antonio Brown doesn't realize how good he had it in Pittsburgh, and frankly, I'd agree. So let me ask you, um, how is... You know, having Derek Carr and a team that's been to the playoffs once in the past 16 years going to make A.B. happy when Ben Roethlisberger and, frankly, a better Steelers team could not. Yeah, and I think that that's the major question for me. Uh, It's not whether he can uh, work with John Gruden or whether he and Derek Carr are necessarily going to get along when everything's running on the calm, but this is a guy that's used to winning 10 games every year, and he's used to being in the AFC playoffs every year. And even with him and some of the other moves that the Raiders have made since, there is absolutely zero guarantee that they're going to win more than six games, right? So how is he going to deal with the losing and quite possibly the apathy uh, of an Oakland fan base that if the Raiders start slow and play terrible, uh, how is he going to deal with that? Is he going to remain um, as uh, committed to what the Raiders are doing. Now, those are all major questions, and I think that that is it because we saw a couple years ago Michael Crabtree and Derek Carr kind of went sour for a little bit, and it impacted that, impacted that locker room. And Michael Crabtree is a more of a quiet type than Antonio Brown, and you don't want that locker room and everything to become uh, toxic. And I think that how he deals with maybe some struggles is, is going to be a major factor in whether this is a good move uh, or a bad one. Scott, you talked about the patience in the Oakland deal for uh, Brown. Who do you credit the patience to, Mayock or Gruden? And what exactly is Mike's role? Yeah, uh, th- I think that, that, that those are things that we're waiting to see and waiting to figure out. Because, let's make no mistake, uh, John Gruden is a Belichickian, Bill Parzian, or Bill, Bill Parcelsian, I'm making up words now, uh, type of football czar that we don't normally see anymore. He, hope, he makes all the decisions, and just like Reggie McKenzie did before Mike Mayock, Mike Mayock is in charge of helping to execute John Gruden's vision, and we know Mike Mayock is going to be intimately involved in the NFL draft, especially in the later rounds. But uh, Mike Mayock was the point man and liaison in negotiations. Uh, the things that I think, the in, biggest influence I think that Mike Mayock can have beyond all of his draft expertise and some of these other things is his ability to keep him on message like what you were saying because John Gruden respects guys that run at the same RPMs, right? And John Gruden is like a well-oiled motocross bike he's rabid quick and reggie mckenzie gets to the same spot but he's the tortoise not the hare and ultimately i think that mike mayock can give him can have a loud enough voice to keep him on message and you see that influence and you look at how mac was dealt with and how antonio brown's deal was dealt with and you do wonder your exact question is this Mike Mayock kind of keeping him on message saying, hey, we need assets to rebuild. Let's not sacrifice. Let's supplement. Um, so I'm, I'm a little cautious to give him credit just yet until we really get to talk to him more uh, as the weeks and months progress. But it does look like Mike Mayock is having a positive impression on Gruden and on that entire scouting staff, which is really on notice right now 
some of the scouts that will help them get through the draft may not be around to get through the next one. You know, I'm down here in Dallas, and the Cowboys absolutely love what they got in Amari Cooper. Now, if he couldn't have an impact in John Gruden's offense, how is Antonio Brown going to have an impact? Yeah, there is, uh, let me put it this way, uh, that Antonio, that, there's too many A's here. Amari Cooper is a very good wide receiver, an excellent one, in my opinion, as good of a route runner as I've seen. The guy turns on a dime. It's, it's incredible. But I don't think that the Raiders were thinking uh, that they were going to pay him even Sammy Watkins' money, right? That, that eventually they were going to have – a value discrepancy that was going to create some problems. Then they took a first-round pick and and shipped them. I think ultimately they view Antonio Brown as scheme universal, and uh, they I think they value his ability to create separation uh, and dominate. And it could be more that Amari Cooper's personality wasn't a great fit, and his in his inconsistency drove John Gruden absolutely insane. We saw less of it um, in Dallas because we saw a lot more targets. And frankly, uh, some of us in Oakland look at that Amari Cooper and his presence and his swagger and confidence and uh, sudden fashion sense, and we just think, we never saw that guy. Uh, that, 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 and I think that he maybe grew into his own moving to Dallas and maybe Dallas is getting more out of him, and uh, Amari Cooper is more committed uh, maybe than he was in the East Bay. How do you see Carr? I mean, you've watched him for a while. I mean, do you see him as a franchise-quality quarterback? Yeah, I, to answer your question directly, and thanks for coming back to that, I, I think this is a real prove-it year for him, um, to your point that he, I did kind of digress there, uh, is that John Gruden has said all the right things about Derek Carr, that it's his guy, and yes, he does love Kyler Murray, and he likes Dwayne Haskins more than people think, uh, but ultimately I feel like after last year, he felt like the evaluation on Derek Carr was incomplete in some way, and that this is going to be an opportunity for Derek Carr to prove himself and for there to be no excuses because he has Antonio Brown, and who knows, stranger things have happened. Maybe he's going to have Le'Veon Bell. And, uh, and uh, more uh, consistency up front. And that will give an idea about whether Derek Carr is the guy to not only carry them uh, yeah, through 2019, he will, but through the remaining three years on his contract. Cutting him gets real cheap next year. It's only $5 million in a, in a dead money hit if they uh, cut him next year. And then they can get a proper evaluation to see, is this our guy to make a splash in Vegas? I think that that is something that when you look at most teams, you see how, uh, with, with all these moves and all these decisions, how are they getting more competitive, right? And that is important. But the Raiders have a, a number of different goals. Number one, they got to put butts in the seats in, in, in Oakland Coliseum next year. And they have to try to remain relevant. And they have to sell PSLs and season tickets to the home market in Las Vegas. And they got to put somebody else on a billboard besides John Gruden. Right, So they have to figure all these things out, and they have to figure out if Derek Carr is that guy moving forward. This is the time to do it. I believe he'll be given another opportunity to do so uh, in 2019, and uh, he, it's uh, put up or shut up time now. Terrific job, Scott. Thanks so much. And uh, you know what? If you can, please tell Mike Mayak that Goose is willing to lend him advice on the draft, would you? <laughs> he should. Uh, absolutely. 
Absolutely will. Guys, thank you so much for the time. Thanks. You got it, Scott. Thank you. Thanks. Up next is going to be that division, the AB, and we're going to be talking about who's going up and who's going south. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Hey, did you guys happen to see um, that story about Tom Seaver last week? I understand we're a, big, uh, a football um, show here, but Tom Seaver is a guy, to me, transcended all sports. And um, that story about him retiring from public life because he's battling dementia at the age of 74... God almighty, that hit me hard because I remember when he was young, when he was a rookie, how he carried that team. He's the face of the franchise. And it seemed like he never aged. I mean, Ronnie seemed like Bobby Orr. Bobby Orr, to me, never ages. But Tom Seaver was the same. And, and now you hear that he's battling dementia. I mean, that's not supposed to happen to baseball players. And it's certainly not supposed to happen to Tom Seaver. Yeah, no, you're right. It's... Uh... Uh, you know, he had sort of disappeared somewhat from public view. You know, he had the big winery out in California and uh, was never a guy who sort of lived in the past of his uh, accomplishments. He was always kind of looking forward. So he just sort of said, well, okay. And then I know they had a uh, reunion of the 69 team, and he, yeah. uh, you know, was sort of made clear at that point that there were problems and he couldn't come back, and that's when it struck him. But, yeah, I mean, partially because he's been away, you know, you tend to never, you know, you always think of him as, as what he was when he was a pitcher. You know, he was in Boston here for a little while at the end of his career. Uh, mm-hmm. But, of course, you know, it's, it's the thing you always remember about him is that knee on the ground almost. Yeah. <laughs> when he would whip that thing in there. But I think uh, the Goose Man uh, probably uh, saw him more than the rest of us. Yeah, you lived in New York, Goose, right? Did, did you did you cover this guy? Did you ever see him? Did you watch him? Yeah, I was. Um, I lived in New York in seventy five, seventy six, and I was working for UPI, and we we you know I covered everything. I covered the Yanke- Yankees, covered the Mets. I covered uh, seventy five opening day at Shea, Tom Seaver versus Steve Carlton. Uh, Steve Seaver wins two one. The game is played in two hours and two minutes, oh. and I was back on a seven train into the city by five o'clock. What I really admired about Seaver. He didn't dawdle on the mound. Give me the ball, because I'm going to throw it. Right. He had right. he had confidence in his stuff. He had confidence in himself, and he felt he was better than the batter. Get in the box. I'm throwing it, and that's why they were such quick games. He was he was a pleasure to watch. He was, he was a master craftsman. He was a pitcher. He didn't always blow away the fastball, but he knew how to pitch. Did you ever interview him, Goose? Yeah. After that game, as a matter of fact. Oh, you did. Yeah. Good to deal with. That's that's what we do. We go to the locker room after game. <laughs> oh, you do? You talk to the players? Really? The AP, I mean, you're working yeah. for UPI sometimes. You're yeah, for UPI. Deadline. You know, Tom Seaver, you know, uh, won this game 2-1, and Ed Crane pulled hit a home run or whatever. I mean, typically yeah. sometimes you don't get down there, but I just wonder if you ever got in touch no, with him. Because we did AMs and PMs, so he had to have a PM lead to it. So, you yeah, yeah. We, we talked to Seaver. He was, he was always a classy guy. You know, he wasn't uh, – 
you know, I, I wasn't out there every day, but when I was out there and talked to him or talked to the other guys, um, you know, he was he was fine with me. Um, there's a there's a controversy in New York. It's not a controversy. The, the, I know the people, uh, especially Mets fans, they, they they want something to recognize Tom Seaver. And I think a couple years ago, maybe it was three years ago, they were talking about building a statue out in front of City Field, but they don't have one. And and both of you guys can comment on this. To me, Tom Seaver is the face of the Mets. When I think of the Mets, I think of Tom Seaver. I don't think of Crane Pulse Foboda um, or any of those guys or Kuzman. I think of Seaver. Um, and and it's sort of. I think incomprehensible to think they don't have one. You want to give me a reason, Ron, why you wouldn't have a statue of Tom Seaver outside your no, stadium? No, well, I mean, you know, uh, I guess if you don't have any, you could say, well, we just don't put statues up there. But, uh, you know, if you think of the Mets uh, and you say, okay, who's the Mets' greatest player? Well, I don't think you have to think twice to come up with Tom Seaver, do you? I mean, who's, no. who's greater than him? So, it, it certainly, you know, not only was it great, their greatest player is their greatest player and still arguably their greatest team. So uh, it makes a lot of sense, which is probably exactly why the Mets aren't doing it. Yeah, right. And, you know, I saw a headline the other day that I absolutely agree with. It said, Tom Seaver made being a Mets fan cool. I think it's right, Goose, don't you? <laughs> he made watching baseball fun. Yeah, he did. Uh, like I said. Yeah, he did. <laughs> Long time yeah, they were, they were, so cool. I always enjoyed going out to Shea, um, yeah. especially when, when Seaver's pitching. I was, you know, the, the, I, 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 you know, the National League played better baseball at that point, and uh, he was one of the two or three best. You know, I remember Bob I Gibson, enjoy, Tom Seaver. enjoyed going out to Shea in uh, November when the wind was blowing. Whew, man, that you know, was cold. Here's one for you. I covered the one season the Giants played in Shea in 76. Excuse me, seventy-five before the year before they moved into Meadowlands. <laughs> that was shades of the, of the Joe Namath Jets with those uh, with that dirt infield. What a terrible football oh, yeah. stadium! Oh, what but a, but a nice, nice baseball stadium. What a dump. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, anyway, um, Tom Seaver, best of luck to you, boy. He was a class pitcher and a class guy. Yep. Um, <laughs> I want to ask you guys since we we talked about uh, Antonio Brown that last segment with Scott Bear, the, the situation. In the AFC North, I'm talking about Pittsburgh and Baltimore specifically. And um, Ron, you cover the AFC, you know, with the AFC East. Sure. You, those are two dominant franchises in that division. But now you look at how they're being stripped away. I mean, Suggs left Baltimore, Weddle left Baltimore. Look what Delevian Bell's gone from the Steelers. Antonio Brown's gone. Trade away Marcus Gilbert. They're stripping away a lot of well, basically guys who were part of a nucleus. And, and guys who help make those teams great. What in the name of Ben Roethlisberger is going on with Pittsburgh, and what is going on in the AFC North? Is it possible, and I'm saying this with trepidation, but is it possible that Cleveland is the best team in that division? Well, it's possible, sure. You know, I mean, with them it always comes down to quarterback play. You know, does their quarterback uh, improve enough and do enough? Um uh, but you know you, there is a little bit of a feeling of the changing of the guard in Baltimore's case. You know, I mean they've they've lost a lot of guys over the years, and they always seem to find a way to to uh, uh, right their ship to some extent. Uh, the Pittsburgh thing feels a little bit uh, different, uh, no question about that. Uh, but you know they've already got a runner there, who you know a thousand yard runner. Uh, is he uh, as good as Le'Veon Bell? Probably not. Uh, but is he good enough? Maybe so. Uh, Receivers, 
you know, as Goose always says, uh, teams don't go to Super Bowls because of their receivers, generally speaking. Uh, and and I think that's true. So they may not be in as quite as bad a shape as, as we think, but there's right. definitely a sense that moving vans are pulling up, especially in Baltimore. I mean, uh, 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 I saw something on Twitter today with uh, – it was Will Smith, and they were they were standing in an empty room, and they they claimed there's Lamar Jackson walking into the Ravens yeah. locker room. <laughs> it was like nothing there but a rug. <laughs> That's sort of the case. Yeah, but I, I know Goose Pittsburgh survived some of these before. You know, I mentioned um, to Scott, you know, Santonio Holmes, you know, great player in 2008 when they won the Super Bowl. They sent him off the Jets. Uh, Plexico Burris sent him off the Giants. Uh, Mike Wallace was the go-to receiver. He left for Miami, and they've survived. But this one feels a little bit different. And, and it seems like, I know we had Ed Bouchette on here a couple of weeks ago. He said it's possible that they could be as good, if not better, without these guys simply because the distractions are gone. Do you buy that? Well, well, another thing, I, I think they've lost their identity. And yeah, I think this, right. this losing Brown and, and Bell gives them a chance to refocus on who they are and mm-hmm. what they do. And what they do is run the football well. This and team is defense. not going to win yeah. if Roethlisberger is throwing 45 times a game. They've mm-hmm. always been built to run the football. And they've gotten away from that last couple of years. And they've gone past happy with Antonio Brown and, and Judas Schuster and, uh, and Rossberg. I think they can uh, refocus, recalibrate. And if they come back as more of a, of a run-based team, uh, I think they can get right back into this thing. Now, Baltimore is a different subject because with all the losses they've, they've taken, the jury's still out on Lamar Jackson. Right, I and mean, I think Roethlisberger right. can cover up a lot of a lot of things that are going wrong at Pittsburgh, but I'm not sure Jackson can. You know, in addition to losing all those defensive guys, you know, they cut Crabtree, they've cut uh, Alex Collins, a running back. You know, they've taken right. some hits in offense too. This is um, not to- a total rebuild, but this is an awfully big rebuild this offseason for him. Yeah, no, I agree with John Brown, also wide receiver, gone from offense. Crabtree's gone. I mean, um, on both sides of the ball. And their identity always was defense. And to me, when they had Suggs there as a holdover from the the Ed Reed and the Ray Lewis days, that helped in the locker room. Sometimes helped on the field, but not so much lately. I think he had one and a half sacks the last ten games. But Weddle was a calming and steadying influence in the back end. Those guys are all gone. C.J. Mosley, he was a young, really good young player, gone. So to me, it's like it's almost like a a do-over, which they had, I think, in – 2003, I remember Brian Billick saying at that point, we're not going to be very good this next year, okay? We're not going to be very good. I think it was 79, something like that. But he cautioned it and just said, you know, we've got to go down to get better. We've got to take one step back to get two steps forward. And they did. And they, they regained themselves and then regained their, their stride pretty quickly. Pittsburgh, though, I, I agree with you. And I, and I think I'd ask both you guys, um, because I do think Pittsburgh has to get its identity back. And I think it can because it has enough star players beginning with that quarterback. Do you think the pressure is more on him, meaning Roethlisberger, or it's more on the head coach now, Ron? Uh, I would say probably uh, the quarterback for you know uh, for a couple of reasons. You know, he's the most high-profile guy. He had direct uh, and numerous public confrontations or problems uh, with Antonio Brown. So some people will, will lay it at his feet and say the reason he's not here is you. Uh, and so if things don't work out. Um, that's the first guy they're going to be looking toward. You know, this is what you wanted, and now you've got it, and what are you going to do? Uh, so I think that's the natural uh, tendency. Uh, the coach, I think, was going to get his own uh, heat because, uh, at least looking from the outside, it sort of seemed like, you know, it's been romper room in there for a few years now. Uh, and, you know, he's the guy in charge. He's supposed to stop it from 
turn into a kindergarten. Uh, and it, and it, now maybe it was only a few guys, but it was a few high profile high profile guys. So uh, he's got to get everybody back on the reservation pretty quickly. Yeah, I think without question, I think I think he's got a chance to recapture his locker room uh, with the distractions mm-hmm. out. He's got to once again become a head coach and become a, a leader of men. And Roethlisberger is going to have to fall in behind him. Roethlisberger going to have the spotlight on the field, but six days out of the week they're on the practice field, and that's going to be Tomlin. Right. Okay, Goose. Let's say he recaptures the locker room. Who's the biggest speed bump for him? Is it Baltimore? Saying that the Ravens somehow find a way to put this thing together. Or it's Cleveland? Cleveland. It's Cleveland. I mean, I, I thought that. I thought if they hit on Mayfield, they were very, very close to being a playoff contender, and they hit on Mayfield. And now they've they've added Vernon to compliment Miles Garrett in the trade with the Giants. Uh, th- then they got they got draft picks. They, they're young. They've got a lot of high, um, you know, lottery type top five, top ten picks. They've got a lot of good young pieces in place, and I, I think I would not be surprised if that team wins a division next year. Plus, they've got Kareem Hunt and Nick Chubb in the backfield as running backs. No, today I'm not sure they're going to have Hunt the whole season. Yeah, um, <laughs> still be a yeah, well, that's true. Board. That's true. But Nick Chubb, I, I, Chubb. I like Nick Chubb. But but I, Ron, I do you're, like you're, Chubb. yeah. Uh, Ron, you're very strong on Cleveland as well. Yeah, no, I think that they've been building for a couple of years in the right way, primarily defense, and then they got a quarterback they think can, they can win with. I think it's still way too early to know whether Baker Mayfield's going to be uh, uh, five years from now working in a, in a huddle or in a bakery. I don't know. You know, we'll see. <laughs> but uh, um, I, but I, I do think they've been building toward this moment, and I think other guys are getting weak at the same time that they're getting strong. So the timing is uh, uh, is good. If they don't if they don't make a move this year, Cleveland, I think that th- then you really got to start scratching your head and saying, does anybody there know what they're doing? Because well, Dorsey, I, I love Dorsey, and I guarantee he'll have a good draft, and they'll put in a couple more key pieces in this draft. I, I think Dorsey knows how to. He's the guy that, that fixed the Chiefs, and he can fix the Browns. You talking about Tommy Dorsey? <laughs> Ron, loves yeah. Ron loves his Browns. Ron loves his Browns. Well, thanks, guys. I guess we're going to have to wait to find out. But uh, we'll find out who in the AFC North is going north and who's going south. <laughs> You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, we have a couple minutes left in this hour, so you know what that means. That's the two-minute warning. Yep, it's a two-minute drill with Ron asking this week's question. So, Ronnie, take it away. Charlie Castle, he followed up ripping Kyler Murray by ripping Josh Rosen's work ethic. Does he hate quarterbacks or love getting trolled on Twitter? Charlie drafted Heath Schuler and must still be holding a grudge against quarterbacks. <laughs> He hates QBs. He's been watching and watching Redskins QBs the past 10 years. <laughs> An anonymous scout allegedly told Dan Patrick that Murray may have inflated his height at the Combine. Did he stand on tippy toes or wear elevator Nikes? Ron, the last documented inflation was by Tom Brady of footballs. <laughs> <laughs> Neither, Ron. He jumped. <laughs> With the addition of Sheldon Richardson, do the Browns have the deepest set of defensive linemen in football? No, the Pro Football Hall of Fame does. Ooh. I don't know, Ron. How low can they go? <laughs> since Cleveland seems to be the Bermuda Triangle of football, does it matter what they have? Well, it hasn't since not the 1950s, anyway. Well, well, when they're in a 20-yard dash with Lamar Jackson. 
Linebacker C.J. Mosley said he prefers staying at Baltimore. Next day, he signed with the Jets. Will he regret going with his wallet and not his heart? Not in the short term, but when the losing starts, he certainly will. Yeah, he won't, because his heart can't buy him a penthouse apartment in Manhattan. <laughs> How much does Le'Veon Bell have to sign for to make up for losing $14.5 million by sitting out the 2018 season? $29 million. Newly <laughs> <laughs> acquired defensive end Michael Bennett says the Patriots, quote, respect who I am as an individual, unquote. How have individuals fared in New England the past 20 years? I can only assume the Patriots must have not have respected Richard Seymour and Vince Wilfork, both better players than Bennett. They re- they, how have they fared? Great. As long as they're gagged. <laughs> Bennett also called Bill Belichick the Yoda of the NFL. Is he talking about his mental powers or his choice of sideline attire? Mental prowess. You don't want to get him Bill Belichick's bad side. Yeah, I agree. It can't be his ears. So I'm going to go with the Wesleyan smarts. New Patriots D coordinator Greg Schiano butted heads with Bennett when both were in Tampa. Does New England signing him mean Bennett has to change? Or Schiano isn't really coordinating anything but Bill Belichick's Halloween outfit? It'll be Bill's way or the highway. Just ask Randy Moss. It means Bennett must first remove his helmet, Ron, before they butt heads again. That's the end of the that's the end of our first hour, but sit still. We have Hall of Famer Emma Thomas, our tribute to St. Patrick's Day, and more free agent debates coming up in the second half of our show. You'll see the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, we lost a giant of journalism last weekend with the passing of Dan Jenkins, who died at the age of 90. Now, I understand much, well, I guess most maybe of his reputation came from writing about golf, but he did give us semi-tough with Billy Clyde Puckett, and he did give us a million laughs. And, Ron, that's not easy. I remember a columnist once telling me, it's hard for funny people to be funny in print. But that was never a problem for Dan Jenkins. No, he's a very quick-witted uh, guy. You know, he's really made for Twitter, which he became a big proponent, proponent of the last few years. He was tweeting all the time. At, uh, and, and, you know, he, he had the perfect sense of humor for it. Uh, between what he said about golfers and college football coaches, you had a full stand-up comic routine. Very funny dude. <laughs> yeah, you covered golf. I know you've covered a lot of tournaments. Did you Love Did you know him? Yeah, a little bit, sure. I knew him to say hello to. I, you know, I know his, his daughter Sally a lot better. He writes a great column at the Washington Post. She is, yeah. Uh, but I did get to listen to a lot of his stories uh, uh, of how much better it was when he was pals with Hogan and Palmer and Byron Nelson. You know, uh, He was a scratch golfer himself. You know, He played at TCU, and Hogan once tried to convince him to turn pro. And when he did, he told Hogan, listen, if you never want to speak to me again, just say so, because that's what's going to happen if I do turn pro. Because <laughs> Hogan was kind of a hard-edged guy. His favorite story about Hogan, which I love this story, Dan said that Hogan, uh, when he would go to the driving range at a tournament, he would always go to the farthest tee box on the right so that everybody had to look at his ass and his perfect swing, and he didn't have to look at anybody. <laughs> I know he lived, and he died, in the Fort Worth area. Two questions for you. A, did you ever know him? And B, was he regarded as something of a local legend down there? Something of a local legend? That's like asking, was Red Smith something of a local legend in New York? Dan Jenkins was to Dallas what Red Smith was to New York. I met him once or twice, but never made it to his inner circle like Ron did. Well, I, 
I saw something that was on Twitter. <laughs> Ron mentioned that he loved to live there, but I saw something where he listed what amounted to the Ten Commandments of Journalism, and one was, right shorter, nobody reads a garden hose. <laughs> Sounds like pretty good advice. <laughs> yeah, excellent. And yeah, we should live by that on the talkoffamnetwork.com. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Ron, you, you got to love a guy who said, the message of my tombstone will be, I knew this would happen. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's per- that, that's perfect, and that's him. You know, he that's gets the message him. across and leaves you laughing. Yeah. Anyway, Dan Jenkins gone, but never ever forgotten. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio from the O'Reilly Auto Parts Studios. Here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, we just mentioned the passing of Dan Jenkins in the previous segment, and I'd be negligent if I didn't mention that we also lost a great and, and really relatively unheralded football player last weekend with the death of former 49ers pass rusher Cedric Hardman, who died at the age of 70. Now, I know the two of you guys remember him, and unofficially he had 121 and a half sacks in his career, including a team record 18 for the Niners in 1971, when in fact they played a 14-game schedule. Goose, he was a pretty good player, and he knew how to find the quarterback, didn't he? Yeah, I think those 122 sacks attest to his greatness. But, uh, you know, the, the, the pre-Walsh 49ers and 70s had some really, really good teams, but they just have never got recognized for that because the Cowboys yeah. or the, you know, who, the Niners, somebody was always in their way. You know, John Brody's another guy. He was a league MVP and has never been in the room to be discussed. Cedric Harper, yeah. never been in the room to be discussed as a finalist. And this is the guy who's in the 100-sack club. It's not right, but that's becoming reality. Yeah, I, I actually got to know him uh, a bit. He came to the Raiders in 1980 after 10 years across the Bay uh, Bridge with the 49ers. And he was you know, he was near the end of his career, but he was the kind of veteran that Al Davis always liked to have uh, in the locker room, kind of cool, calm guy in a room full of maniacs. Uh, and... Uh, you know, he could kind of keep a lid on things. And, of course, that year they became the first wild card team in history to win the Super Bowl. But what I remember best is I noticed how every day he'd come into the locker room in the morning. Because uh, I was like Goose. I lived in a place in those days. He, carrying a briefcase. He was the only guy I ever saw. Carrying, he was like he was a lawyer, you know, or like an insurance salesman or something. Only guy with a briefcase. So finally one day I went up to him and I said, hey, you know, I got a question for him. And he says, yeah. You had that Barry White. Yeah. Uh, I said, uh, you keep bringing that briefcase in there. What do you got in there? He, he he pops the latches, he flips it open, he shows me, and inside is a clean pair of briefs. And he says, <laughs> it's a briefcase, ain't it? <laughs> Couldn't argue with him. <laughs> you can't argue with him. That's a great story. A little-known fact about him, by the way, I saw this the other day. He was the first player signed by the USFL Oakland Invaders in 1983 and was their player coach that year when they went 9-9. Nine and nine. Not bad. Cedric Hartman, anyway, was he was a lot better than most people know. Um, okay, as I said, this is a special week. We have Kyler Murray's Pro Day. We have the Ides of March. We have free agency. And, of course, we have this. Robert, would you please strike up the band? Okay. Most everywhere in this country, there's a St. Patrick's Day parade, right? And in most places in this country, people wear green. Except, of course, in Chicago, where the Chicago River wears green. So in honor of St. Patrick's Day, I'm going to ask Rick and Ron to help me with our own St. Patrick's Day parade. Only this is a parade of questions, hopefully a parade of answers that won't make you feel green. You guys ready? Yes. Yes, sir. Excuse man. Yes, sir. Okay. We need a grand marshal for this year's parade. Goose, who's your choice? Jim Kelly. He deserves a good turn in his life. Wow, I like it. Ronnie? You know, you stole my thunder on that one. 
There's nobody more Irish than a Kelly, and no more of a leader than Jim Kelly. There you go. We also need a marching band and cheerleaders. Where do you go for years, Ron? Greatest football band in NFL history, the band that wouldn't die, the Colts marching band led by football's fabulous females, the Oakland Raiders cheerleaders. That's enough to make a Lithuanian like Johnny and wow. turn Irish. That's the best combination since spaghetti and meatballs. Okay, Goose, where are you going for yours? Go get the band already decked out in green, the Michigan State marching band. <laughs> I, knew, I knew this was How did I know that that was going? They've been on hiatus from this show for about two years now. we got to get them back here. <laughs> When you think green, what comes to your mind first, Goose? The Irish, Hugh Green, Lorne Green, or Dartmouth College? Sparty, and all others are a distant second. <laughs> distant. Ron. The Green Hornet, expert detective skilled in hand-to-hand combat. Perfect guy to be the captain of your defense. Greatest Irish quarterback, Ron. That's easy. The Amish rifle, Ryan Fitzpatrick. No quarterback ever survived longer or earned more for doing less in NFL history than that Harvard-educated Irishman. Eddie LeBaron, the only leprechaun ever to take snaps in the NFL. (laughs) (laughs) Greatest Irish wide receiver. Hall of Famer Tim Brown of the Fighting Irish. Ron? Oh, my God. Has there ever been an Irish? I tell you who. Danny Amendola, his mother was Irish. At least so he said. <laughs> Greatest Irish defensive player. Oh, easy. George Conner, great two-way player with the Bears and is considered by many the original prototype for the fast, agile linebacker. Made all-pro at offensive tackle, defensive tackle, and linebacker and ended up in the Hall of Fame. I got a better Who's one. Been? I got a better one. Hall of Famer Alan Page of the Fighting Irish. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, uh, Ron, did you hear what he said? He said he's got a better one. Apparently yeah, he didn't like your choice. He's a little bit, you know, he's pushing it a little bit. Okay. Greatest game involving a team wearing green, a star player named green, or a nickname that is green or Irish. Goose? So easy. Michigan State's cotton ball victory over Baylor uh, in 2015 when the Spartans rallied from a 20-point fourth-quarter deficit oh, in Texas to beat the home team. Wow. Ron. Yeah, now let's get on the right page. The 1960 Eagles NFL Championship team. Last time a player played 60-minute game, which was Chuck Bednarik. He played center and middle linebacker. Last team to ever beat Lombardi's Packers in an NFL Championship game. And if you'll recall, fellas, dressed in green, Bednarik tackled Packer fullback Jim Taylor on the final play and then laid on top of him until time ran out after what he said, you can get up now. Taylor was dressed in mud that day. <laughs> he was. Okay, lastly, guys, in your Hall of Fame of Irish-American football players, who's your first choice? Oh, it's easy. John Annam, and he believed the greatest lineman who ever lived. Goosman. Patty Driscoll, Hall of Fame quarterback, Chicago Cardinals, 1950s. you got to pick a guy named Patty, Ron. Come on. <laughs> I like that. That's a good one, Patty. <laughs> well, he's not Irish, but he is Ron Borden. And in today's Fortunes of Bogus, he's going to tell us all about... Free agency. Take it away, Ronnie. I'll tell you, if ever there is a bogus time of the year in the NFL, this is it. It's fitting that the opening of free agency is preceded by legal tampering period. Legal tampering? Bogus. So first they tamper with other people's contracts, which in most businesses would put you in court, and then they overpay someone else's average player and claim he's a steal. (laughs) Example, the Lions paid a guy named Trey Flowers, who has never been to a Pro Bowl and isn't likely to get there anytime soon, from what I've seen, over $50 million in guaranteed money to come work for him. Bill Belichick's response, let me help you pack. 
For the second year in a row, a team has signed away the Patriots' left tackle by making him the highest-paid offensive lineman in pro football. wonder if the Giants think Nate Soldo is worth that $16 million a year they paid him and the $34.8 million fully guaranteed to anchor a line that allowed more sacks than all but nine NFL teams last season. Now there's Trent Brown of the 49ers. They get the I mean they gave him away a year ago to New England. He plays one season. Now he's Anthony Munoz and he lands a 4-year, 66 million dollar contract from the Raiders with 36.75 million guaranteed. Just think it would be worth if you ever made a pro bowl. Bogus. No wonder NFL loans insist on a salary cap. They don't own a thinking cap. <laughs> You may have noticed by now one thing. Most of the most expensive activity, although not all of it, is done by desperate teams with lousy records and years of mediocrity. In many cases, they are repeat offenders, like the Redskins, who have wasted enough money to build three Super Bowl teams without building any. Or the Jets, all we say about them is bogus. And then there's the Raiders. They pay this guy, they pay that guy, they pay the next guy, but they seldom pay the right guy. March after March, nothing changes. Free agency begins, teams waste tons of money, signing average players, and the usually unusual vain hope that overpaying them will make them a star. Let's take a look back just one year ago. Arizona hands Sam Bradford, whose knee was a mess, a one-year $20 million contract with $50 million guaranteed. He played three games and was released. Then there's the Redskins deal for a wide receiver named Paul Richardson. Remember him? They paid him $40 million over five years with $12.5 million guaranteed. He caught 20 passes. That's $400,000 apiece. Bogus. But my favorite signing of a year ago was the Bills' decision to give a 10-year veteran cornerback, Vontae Davis, $5 million to come play for a year. He quit at, at, in the second game at halftime in the locker room. Free agency, bogus time. Ron, who is the greatest free agent in history? Ooh, Who was great, bogus? Oh, the greatest free agent. This is Reggie White. Reggie White, he changed everything. Was he the last good signing in free agency? <laughs> he probably was. You know, I'd have to give it a little <laughs> bit of a thought, but he probably was. Uh, it, it's unbelievable. The, the first 48 hours, you guarantee that none of these stiffs are going to be anything. Guaranteed. Ron, I guess that, means, guess that means that you endorse the Patriots' philosophy towards free agency. Wait out the first week, get into the second. Yeah, exactly. When everybody else is out of money. Yeah, okay. Well, thanks, Ronnie. And you know what? Here's a box of Lucky Charms for that presentation. Very good. You earned it. (laughs) This is Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, because we are a fair and balanced operation here at the Talk of Fame Network, we'd like to congratulate... Terrell Owens, a.k.a. T.O., Hall of Fame Class 2018, for getting named to the San Francisco 49ers Ring of Honor. Goose, that's pretty good for him. Very nice for the 49ers. Think he's going to show up? Well, it took him longer to get into the San Francisco Hall than it did the Pro Football Hall, so he'd be an absolute hypocrite if he did show up. (laughs) Well, somebody who always showed up passed away this week. Hate to keep going on this same theme, but it was a tough week, and that was Hal Blaine. And, and maybe you're saying, huh? Who? Ron, tell the listeners who he played for. Yeah, I'm not saying that. He was one of the most recorded studio drummers in history with over 35,000 sets played, including the opening drum shot on one of my favorite songs, Be My Baby by the Ronettes. He did good vibrations for the Beach Boys and Mr. Tambourine Man with the Birds. And this week, he you are correct, sir. solo. Goose? Tell them who else he played for. Marilyn McCoo, Billy Davis in the fifth dimension. Yeah, you 
You are correct, sir, again. In fact, Hal Blaine, the first member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a sideman, a member of the Wrecking Crew, he played drums for 400 bands and on 6,000 songs. And he played on 40 40 number one hits from the Birds to Sinatra to Elvis to the Ronettes, and on six consecutive Grammy Record of the Year winners from 1966 to 71. Ron, the guy was everywhere. So, because it's a football show, is there anyone in the NFL you would compare him to? Yes, immediately one guy comes to mind. Trey Junkin, he played in the background of 281 NFL games as a long snapper. Few knew his name, but they couldn't play the music or the games without him. Good one, Ron. Anyway, Hal was 90 when he passed away Monday, and he certainly made an impact. Oh, and uh, you know what? Speaking of an impact, we're going to have Hall of Famer Emmett Thomas on with us in just a few minutes. He made an impact with the Kansas City Chiefs, but I noticed somebody else made an impact, and that was Johnny Robinson, because I noticed somebody else mentioned something about those Chiefs and what they did. It was the Hall of Fame, and they did it this week. They said Johnny Robinson is the sixth defensive player from the 69 Chiefs, and that's a Chiefs team that Emma Thomas was part of, setting a Kent record for the most players from that side of the ball from one team in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Man, Goose, I know because you covered the Chiefs, that comes as no surprise to you. Not at all. That was one of the greatest, most underrated defenses in history. The 69 Chiefs were the last defense to lead the NFL in the four major statistical categories, run, pass, scoring, and total. Half of those six Hall of Famers, by the way, were elected as seniors after waiting a minimum of 25 wow. years. So wow. that NFL bias lasted a long time. Goose, why do you think they don't get more recognition? Because when you hear people talk about great defenses down to the 85 Bears, the 2000 Ravens, the Steelers, the 76, you rarely hear the 69 Chiefs mention. Why? Is it the AFL bias against that? Uh, I think part of it, and I also think it's, you know, we're, as we talk about every week, the latest is the greatest. You know, the yeah. newest is the best. And, and yeah, well. they were so far back that uh, people have forgotten about them. I'll tell you guys. They haven't forgotten about the Bears. I think something else happened there, too, Goose, in that, you know, you had the tremendous uh, upset in Super Bowl three of the Jets. And then right after Super Bowl four, you had the, you know, the merger and and the to join the two leagues. And I think they just got sandwiched between these two sort of big moments in in NFL history. And and their moment got lost, which in my mind is one of the most significant moments in pro football history in terms of least uh, noticed, as you guys point out. Yeah, no, I think you're right. Uh, we're going to have an Emmett on in just a few minutes, and so maybe we can ask him about it. But um, anyway, back to the matter at hand. Goose, I'm sorry. Matter at hand is free agency. Yeah. <laughs> it won't quit. doesn't go away. And the first question I want to ask you guys doesn't have to do with a particular player or signing. It has to do with the process. Um, the NFL designated Monday and Tuesday this week, as you know, as days where you can negotiate with players but not strike deals, right? It deals all we heard about this week. And, Goose, I guess my question is, why why play this charade? Why not just go back to what it once was and say, here's the date you can sign somebody, not before, you can do it after, and just stick to it. Why not that? Because then there would be tampering, and the NFL will have to either fine or suspend the guilty parties. And how do you fine 32 teams? <laughs> By giving teams this two-day window to ignore the spirit of fair play, the league is officially off the hook. I know how you find 32 teams. Put Ted Wells on the case. You can do it. Hey, Ron, um, yes. I noticed that you're Patriots, and I say, yes, you're Patriots. That'd be the defending Super Bowl Patriots. Uh, they're typically quiet, as they are every year. Uh, and I've got to tell you, I love like that. A little about church them. mouse. 
Yeah, yeah. But, you know, they typically they, they sit out that first week, as we said before, until the, the big money's gone. And then they dive in to post the low-budget players who fit niches on that team. And, yeah, it works okay. Seems to work pretty well. So why don't others follow that formula? Well, I think it, uh, a couple of reasons. The biggest one is most of the teams throwing money around in the first few days have uh, two things in common. Desperation. And they need yeah. to make a big splash to keep their fans from burning down the stadium. Uh, you know, Matt Patricia in Detroit already has people calling for his bearded head. The Jets and Redskins are perennial underachievers. And then there's the Raiders throwing money around to try and disguise the fact that they already unloaded their two best players. And they're a mess. Desperate teams, desperate times do desperate, desperate things. The only thing desperate about the Patriots is their legal record, which is Owen forever. Goose, mark that down. He just knocked the silver and black. <laughs> no, I'm not kidding. He is not silver or black. He is an <laughs> pasta. Um, Goose, man, as you mentioned, I think in the first get back in the first hour, I know you're not a believer in free agency as a panacea for bad teams trying to be good. And there is a history. I mean, you go to Scott Mitchell, Adam Archuleta, Albert Hainsworth, guys like that. Um, you want us to give us the, the good, bad, and the ugly of free agency? You're, you're our historian. Tell us. The good... Reggie White by the Packers, the bad, the Domicon Sioux by the Dolphins, and the ugly, you got it, Albert Hainsworth by the Redskins. And like I said, guys, in the 25 years of free agency, you can count on two hands, number of players who played to the duration and value of their contracts. There's a lot more bad than there is good. Okay, well, let's find out what's good, bad, and ugly about this first week. Let's get down to what happened. And, Goose, I'm going to start with Ron on this one, so I'll let you cool down for a second. Ronnie? Yes, sir? Which signing, which signing this week will have the biggest impact? I think one way or another, it's Antonio Brown. If he doesn't work out, it'll cost Derek Carr his job and maybe Gruden his. If it does work out, Carr's failing career could be resurrected. Uh, it was a high-stakes gamble on a guy who's reaching the age, 30-plus, when receivers begin to fade. Uh, he's a, he's a, uh, uh, if he turns into a disruptive bust, John Gruden will have some splaining to do, Lucy. Gooseman? Yeah, I got neck falls. You know, maybe the interceptions will stop and the winning will now start in Jacksonville. Yeah. I'm with you on that one. Which was the biggest gamble? Goose, start with you. Landon Gallons, $84 million is a lot of money to pay a defensive back who's not a corner. Ronnie? I think it's false to the Jaguars. Is he an upgrade over Blake Bortles? Yes, but so would Colt McCoy be. The larger issue is this. Is a guy who fumbled every 33 times he touched the ball the last two years and has a pretty consistent injury history worth guaranteeing $50 million to? If Tom Coughlin's wrong on this one, he won't get to make the decision on who, on who the next Jags quarterback is. You're an upgrade over Blake Bortles, Ron. Yes, I okay, Ron, start with you on this one. Which is the smartest choice in your estimation? Smartest choice. Uh, New England trading a fifth-round pick to get the uh, to the Eagles for uh, defensive of Michael Bennett because, uh, uh, assuming his free spirit doesn't trip him up, they get a reliable pass rusher for millions less than it would have cost them to keep Trey Flowers. It wasn't worth the money. Uh, he just got from Detroit by a long shot. It buys New England another year to find its next uh, edge rusher. Uh, gives him flexibility because he can play inside a route. Uh, a lot of matchup possibilities that uh, Belichick can use. Uh, and the thing they love best is two years' salaries are unguaranteed at $6.2 million and $7 million. Give me a problem, I dump your ass. Don't play well, I dump your ass. It's the Patriots, facility, uh, it's the Patriots motto, I dump your ass. <laughs> <laughs> Goose, I'm not going to ask you 
you to dump your ass with the smartest juries. Anthony Barr's decision to bolt on the New York Jets and resign with the Minnesota Vikings. As a defensive player, I'd rather have Mike Zimmer holding my fate in his hands than Adam Gase. I'm with you on that. So, Gooseman, which one left you scratching your head? Clark, there's not enough time left in this segment to list them. <laughs> I see a lot of Sarah Kep casualties and heartaches looming on the horizon. <laughs> I got one. The Rams gave Dante Fowler $12 million on a one-year deal. He was underwhelming in Jacksonville, and last season he had three and a half sacks and eight hits on the quarterback in 11 games, including the playoffs. Worse, from the moment he joined the team, L.A. produced higher sack and pressure rates with him off the field than they did when he was on the field. Sure, it's only a one-year deal, but history says this is an overreach that makes little financial sense. So you don't love L.A., Ron, right? I love L.A. Don't love Dante Fowler. There you go. Okay, uh, Ron, if we're handicapping winners and losers, who's the early front runner in March Madness? I think, you know, Cleveland may be the, I mean, you never know for sure. What? I mean, Cle- yeah, well, I think they improved their defensive lines by signing Sheldon Richardson. They already had a good crew going in. Uh, they, you know, they're, they're really going to be deep at that position so they can rotate a lot of guys and stay fresh. And they're building a shutdown defense. So that might, it may finally lead to something in Cleveland beside uh, dog bones being thrown from the dog pound. <laughs> I say it's the agents, the big winners. There's always crazy money being spent during the first week of free agency, and these guys are getting cut of cuts of every penny of it. Okay, Goose, who's the biggest loser? The Lions, 49ers, and anyone else who has signed or will sign a Patriot. If you don't <laughs> sign Tom Brady, you're signing the wrong Patriot. Amen. <laughs> oh, Ron? Biggest loser. C.J. Mosley. I don't know how much of a money difference there was between staying in Baltimore or going to the Jets, but I know this. You go going to Florian Park is the NFL equivalent of crossing the River Styx. <laughs> Big sign there says, Abandon hope, all ye who enter here. <laughs> Why did Buffalo sign 34-year-old Frank Gore? Hey, the man averaged 4.6 yards a carry. He's a high-character guy in the locker room. He may help out LaShawn McCoy a bit. His running style fits the conditions. And he didn't cost much of $2 million bucks. Why not? They wanted a, someone in the huddle that Josh Allen could call sir. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, gentlemen. I call both of you sir. Now go try to find a free agent contract for us, would you? Up next, it's Hall of Famer Emmett Thomas. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Emmett Thomas intercepted 58 passes on his way to the Pro Football Hall of Fame as a cornerback for the Kansas City Chiefs. But if he didn't have a bust in Canton as a player, he might have one as a coach. And that's because he retired this offseason after spending 38 years as a defensive assistant with the Redskins, the Eagles, the Packers, the Vikings, the Falcons, and the Kansas City Chiefs. And where he won a Super Bowl ring, as a player with the Chiefs, he won two more as a coach with the Redskins. And now now he's here to talk about his career and his former teammate, Johnny Robinson, who joins Emmett in the Hall in August as a member of the class of 2019. And Emmett, great to have you. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me. Hey, Emmett, you started in the Kansas City Secondary alongside Johnny Robinson for five seasons helping the Chiefs win two FL titles and their only Super Bowl. 
the two of you combined to intercept 115 career passes. No duo in a single NFL secondary ever intercepted more. What made Johnny Robinson special as a player? He had great ball skills. He did a lot of film studying, and he was mentally tough. He had great ball skills. And we played a lot of single high. So Johnny could sit deep, read, and break on the football, and he did a wonderful job. And that 69 uh, yeah. Super Bowl championship uh, uh, Chiefs team, of course, they were the last team to lead the league in defense across the board. Run defense, pass defense, scoring defense, total defense, uh, nothing left. Uh, and six members of that team, now they're in the Hall of Fame, yourself and Johnny and, and Willie Lanier and Bobby Bell, and of course, and Buck Buchanan and Curly Culp. Uh, besides the obvious individual talents you had, what made that defense so special as a group? Look smart. We cared for each other. Uh, Tough guys, uh, guys with great ball skills, had a passion for the game. And then when you look around, you look at Jerry Mays, you look at Jim Lynch, you look at Jim Marcellus and Jim Kearney, you know, four other members of that, that defense that contributed. And like I tell everybody, when I go speak or talk someone, Jim Kearney was our toughest guy in the secondary. He, could, he was a really tough guy and would hit. It was very smart. And the Johnson thing back then, most of us had been quarterbacks or running backs on offensive ball side. So we had a, we had a feel for what offensive was trying to do. We had an excellent, excellent defense coordinator in Tom Bettis. Emmett, Ron asked you about what made that defense so special. I, I, I want to ask you about why more people today don't recognize that as one of the greatest defenses ever. Because as he mentioned, you guys led the league in defense across the board, run, pass, scoring, and total defenses. And yet when people talk about great defense, they talk about the 76 Steelers or the 85 Bears or the 2000 Ravens or the 2002 Tampa Bay Bucks. Why don't they talk more about the 69 Chiefs? I guess because we were in the AFC. But the other thing was that uh, we didn't get as much out of it as a team as we talk about sometimes now. Like I was at the one-on-one banquet this past weekend, and Lanier and Bell and and Mike Garrett and all of us was there. We didn't win enough championships that we thought we should have uh, won with the, with the talent that we had, especially on the defensive side. But as you talk about all the defenses through the league, I think definitely we rank with any of them right now. And Johnny led the intercept led the NFL with ten interceptions in nineteen seventy. You led the NFL with twelve inches interceptions in nineteen seventy four. The NFL hasn't seen a player with interception and double figures since 2007, and the league leader last season had only seven. You were still coaching last season. Where have all the interceptions gone? Uh, I really don't know. They play so much uh, combination defensive now, and you're not tied up individually where someone can go at you and you can get a chance to make plays on the ball. Uh, back then, you know, we played a lot of singing high, a lot of man-to-man, so they threw the ball a lot, especially in the AFC and the AFL. We threw the ball a lot over there. You know, it was the first uh, day to start having receivers and catch 100 balls. So the ball was thrown in there a lot like it is now. And uh, guys now are so specialized in one one event in high school and college that their ball skills sometimes are lacking where when we grew up, we played football, basketball, baseball, did everything. Like I said, our secondary was full of offensive guys. I was a quarterback. Jim Marcellus was a receiver. 
Uh, Jim Kearney was a quarterback in college. Johnny was running back at LSU. Uh, Lanier had great hands. Lance, by the way, all those guys had 20-plus uh, interceptions in their career. So we had some guys that could really get to football, and our defense coordinator put us in a position where uh, we can make plays. We had Buckley, Cannon, Carter, Cup, Darren Brown, and Jerry Mays up front giving us pressure. And a guy that protected me for years was Jim Lynch over on the right-hand side. So that enabled us to uh, get, get some picks. Of course, you, you coached Hall of Fame cornerbacks Roger Worley and Daryl Green. You coached Pro Bowl cornerbacks Daniel Hall and Marcus Peters and Brandon Flowers. Uh, and obviously you're a Hall of Famer uh, uh, corner yourself. So what do you look for in a corner uh, in a cornerback? And what's the most important thing that, that makes for a great corner? What do they all have to have? Mental toughness. Mental toughness. you got to be mentally tough because everything is not going to be peaches and cream on the afternoon. And you might not be at your best, and you're going to run up on some tough, tough matchups all the time. But the thing that you really have to do is be mentally tough and have some speed. But you have to be, you have to be a, a study of film and tendencies and check your splits out in order to be successful out there. And, of course, a great pass rush will always help you. How, how difficult is it, uh, Emmett, for, for a guy – to sort of erase, uh, you know, the, the instantaneous erase the, erase the memory of a, uh, of a touchdown going over them or something like that. How hard is that for a, for a player to do? If you're willing to tell them, you know, it's one of, the, one of the hazards of the occupation that you play out there. That's going to happen sometimes. So you don't want it to happen more than, than you defend it. But uh, it, 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 it's, it's, it's play after play. You have to be ready to play. So when something happens, you got to – Get ready for the next play so you can't dwell on it. So it's not that hard if you know it's Because you know that on some, some occasion they're going to get to you out there. Emmett, who's the most mentally tough player you've ever seen or ever been around? Probably Willie Lanier. Hmm. Willie Lanier, Buck Buchanan. I had two good ones right there. And, you know, not disregarding anyone, but I think Lanier and Buck Buchanan that I played with. Those two guys are real moments up, guys. Well, Emmett, uh, Ron asked you about cornerback. I want to ask you about safety. And since we were talking about Johnny Robinson earlier, you played with him. And, of course, you coached Hall of Fame safety Brian Dawkins. You also coached Pro Bowl safeties Robert Griffith and Eric Berry. What do you look for in a safety? Same question as Ron asked you about cornerback. What do you look for in a safety? And more importantly, what makes a great safety? I think what you really look for in the safety is really toughness and leadership back there. Leadership and toughness, you know, uh, really getting into the game plan, deciphering the game plan, able to look out at a corner and, and giving some hints on what might be coming. But uh, in coaching uh, those guys, I was very fortunate to be around Dawkins and Todd Bowles and those type of guys in the secondary. And, uh, uh they were good football players. But the thing you like this is toughness, leadership. How much did it sting you you personally and your team, what Lombardi said after that game, you know, where he sort of made a point of saying, you know, NFL's better. It really got to Buck Buchanan, Dawson, Bobby Bell, Jerry Mays, uh, guys that had been in the league for four or five years or, or longer. Myself, I was a rookie. Mike Garrett, our best, he was a rookie. 
Fletcher Smith was a rookie. Uh, Gene Thomas was a rookie. It was a lot of Aaron Brown was a rookie. So the magnitude of the game didn't strike us like it did. But coming back down that tone after we lost that game and to see grown men cry like babies, you knew uh, it hurt. And uh, it kind of carried on for us all the way through. It's definitely me in my career. And what was your... What are your memories of that 67 preseason game with the Bears, the first time you played an NFL game after the Packers? All I, all I know is Hank stressed the fact that he wanted us to play like a regular season game. And see, they had drafted the running back from KU. And uh, we all know what I'm talking about. And he went to the NFL instead of coming to the AFL. And so Hank had a vendetta out uh, against that team because of that. And we played and loaded up like it was a regular season game because we were trying to get the, get the two legs to get the merger. And uh, we were just big and faster in there. I mean, they played strong side, weak side, and with this motion and shifting that Hank was doing, there was no way that they could uh, keep up with us. And I think we'd be in 6-6 or something. That's the most points ever scored against the Hellas team. Pardon me? That was the most points ever scored against a George Hallis team. Yeah, and I think they played strong side, weak side players, and Hank Glider one went shift the other in motion, and we got them all out of sight, and we ripped them. <laughs> Emmett, you talked about tough players earlier. Who was the toughest guy for you to cover? Who was the toughest receiver? And I'm not talking about just physically tough, but the most difficult guy for you to cover in your career. Uh, I'm, I'm going to say Paul Warfield and, and Blitzko. Uh Two different guys from the spectrum. Warfield was quicker, uh, tougher, faster. Valentikov uh, was real crafty. And I didn't get a chance to cover him that much, but we played right, my and I played right and left, and he lined up majority of the time on our left side. But uh, I had an occasion to cover him a couple of times. But those two guys was, uh, was tough duty on Sunday afternoon. Well, I'm glad to hear you mention Warfield because I think in this day and age, when you mention Paul Warfield, a lot of people don't recognize how great a receiver he was. And unfortunately, they look at numbers, and it's such a different passing game then that they pale in comparison with today's. But he was a marvelous, marvelous receiver. He sure was. And, you know, I look at these guys now. Uh, the guy that, that really kind of looks like him a little bit, body-wise, is a receiver from the Denver Broncos, number 10. And, uh, but Warfield was crafty, he was tough, quick, athletic, and Freddie wasn't as fast, but he was a rock runner machine. And uh, those two guys uh, kept you busy on a Sunday afternoon. Emmett, by 69, you guys had seven future Hall of Famers on the roster. What was your confidence level heading into that second Super Bowl with the Vikings, and how was that team different from the first Super Bowl team? I think we were a little bit more experienced, and, and I, I don't want to say that, but we were better at corner position. I think the interior lineman and, and the near was there with us. We were better at middle linebacker. We were better outside linebacker. Uh, Curly Cup was with us. I think we were a better defense, and we were more confident going into that game. And, and I, I knew the secondary was better, definitely. Not saying because I was in it, but it, Jim Marseille was on one side, I was on one side. Johnny was in the middle, and Jim Curtin was a strong safety, and yet Bobby Bell 
Lanier, Nance. Uh, that, that, that was a nice group back then being there together up front. Emmett, thanks so much for the time. Really enjoyed it. And enjoy retirement. It's good. We're enjoying it. Enjoy it. Have a good time. <laughs> <All right. laughs> thanks, Emmett. Thanks, Emmett. Thanks, Emmett. That was Hall of Famer Emmett Thomas. Next up, it's a two-minute drill. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, we're near the finish line, so Robert, blow that whistle. That's the two-minute warning. That's right, it's a two-minute drill again, and Ronnie, take us home, baby. Well, the Chiefs not only want to change overtime so both teams get the ball, they want to eliminate the coin toss. What in the hell does the coin toss have to do with anything? Well, they think it cost them a trip to the Super Bowl, Ron, but it didn't. Their defense did. It's less about coins tossed by referees than footballs tossed by Tom Brady. <laughs> John Gruden called to Antonio Brown, quote, the hardest working play he's ever seen. When did he ever see him work? When he went on Twitter. Maybe he's mistaking him for Keyshawn Johnson. <laughs> what would Ben Roethlisberger call Antonio Brown? Uh, Antonio. Ex-teammate. <laughs> Who survives longer in Washington? Case Keenum, Alex Smith, Colt McCoy, or Donald Trump? Trump. The others can't even make Washington great again. Colt McCoy because every fan base loves the backup quarterback. <laughs> Dante Fowler just signed a one-year contract worth $14 million, with $12 million fully guaranteed after a season in which he had three and a half sacks and eight quarterback hits in 11 games while his team pressured the quarterback more when he was off the field than on it. How is this possible? Simple. March Madness. Fowler must have impressed the Rams with that four-tackle performance in the Super Bowl. Speaking of Detroit, the Lions' newly acquired pass rusher, Trey Flowers, is he ready to bloom or about to fade? Fade. He just traded in Tom Brady for Matt Stafford. Flowers bloom better outdoors in Foxborough than indoors in Detroit. Was Eagles' decision to bring their prodigal son, Deshaun Jackson, back to Philadelphia a smart move or a panic move? Neither. It was a dumb one. The guy's 32 and injury prone. Any signing of an aging player in free agency qualifies as the panic move. Who retires first, Tom Brady or Frank Gore? Us. <laughs> Frank Gore. Maybe as soon as August. Did the free agent signing of uh, Tyron Methow, also known as Donnie Badger, mean the end of Eric Berry's days in Kansas? No. No. It means the Chiefs are very, very good at safety now. <laughs> it does unless Berry can move to offense and replace the rushing yards of Kareem Hunt. What would Anthony Munoz or Archell get paid today? More than us, but not as much as Stanford, USC, Yale, and Georgetown. Not much. Even the Raiders aren't spending money on 70-year-old tackles these days. <laughs> That's the end of the game. If you'd like to listen to this or any podcast, just go to our website, thatbetalkoffamenetwork.com, or find us on iTunes or your podcast app. Otherwise, look for us next week at this time and on this station. Thanks for listening.